Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of John Kleinig's Grace Upon Grace. Now, we've been looking at the mystery of meditation, as Kleinig calls it. And today, we'll pick back up on page 104 with the idea of spiritual feeding as meditation. Now, in order to introduce this, Kleinig brings up the picture of a mother nursing her baby. And then we draw a connection here with Luke chapter 11. So let's pick up with that second paragraph under the heading spiritual feeding. In a... In 11:27 through 28, Luke teaches about the importance of meditating on God's word by reporting this puzzling exchange between Jesus and a woman in the crowd of bystanders. Here it is. As he, that is as Jesus, said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, "Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed." But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Kleinig comments, The woman in the story seems to be a rather earthy and yet pious mother. There is nothing prudish about her and her attitude to motherhood. She seems to have been disappointed as a mother by the way her own son or sons have turned out. So when she hears the teaching of Jesus, she envies Mary, his mother. She congratulates Jesus for having such a lucky mother, for she assumes that he must take after her, like mother, like son. How great it would be to have a son like him. Mary is truly blessed to be the mother of Jesus. In Christ's response, he does not disagree with her. Jesus admits that Mary is blessed, but he adds that any disciple is far more blessed uh, than Mary. In fact, Mary is doubly blessed, first as the mother of Jesus and then as a disciple of Jesus. She is most blessed because she hears the word of God and keeps it. She became pregnant with Jesus by hearing God's word and believing in it. You recall as the angel came and announced to her. Yet she is not alone in this. All disciples including the woman who congratulated Jesus, are just as blessed as Mary, because like her, they receive Jesus as the Lord and Savior by trusting in his word. Kleine continues, In his response to the woman, Jesus compares and contrasts those who receive physical life and nourishment from an earthly mother with those who receive spiritual life and nourishment from God's word. Just as babies receive physical life in and through their mother's wombs, so we receive new birth through hearing God's word. Like infants, we cannot keep ourselves alive spiritually, just as babies are nourished and kept alive by drawing milk from their mother's breasts, so the same word that regenerates us, uh, regenerated us nourishes us. The word of God spoken by Jesus is our spiritual womb and our spiritual breasts. By hearing that word, we receive eternal life. By keeping it in our hearts, we receive nourishment. 
Like infants, we grow up as children of God as we feed on the pure milk of God's word. And that's the language of 1 Peter uh, 2.2. Okay, so then what is spiritual feeding or spiritual eating? Yes? Um, when you read, you are cons- like um, somehow um, <clears throat> using the word of God and um, you are consuming it in a way. Right. It's an eating that's done, if you're reading like an American, uh, it's done with your eye. Uh, in the ancient world, as you'd read, you'd read out loud. And so the sound of your own voice would bring that and it would be done by the ear. But you're taking that in, aren't you? So that word is being taken in, and it's nourishing you and giving you life. Now, there's a way in which all, uh, all reading is a kind of eating or a kind of consumption. That's true for uh, all kinds of media, isn't it? The TV, the radio, the Internet. You're in, a, in a very real sense, you're taking content into yourself all the time. And that content which is different, distinct, can give life, can nourish, can sustain life, if that life we're talking about is spiritual life, then that content alone is the pure milk of God's holy word. That's Kleinick's point. So if we're talking about meditating by spiritual feeding, we're talking about a feeding that takes place not so much with our mouths, in fact, not with our mouths at all, but it's taken into us typically by hearing. So even if we were to distinguish something like sacramental eating or sacramental feeding, like we do in the Lord's Supper, that's something that uh, sacramental eating proper involves the mouth, but also the ear. As the ear hears Christ say, this is my body, this is my blood for you, for your forgiveness, and then the mouth receives that very gift. To contrast that with a spiritual eating or spiritual feeding, that is done solely by the ear with the exception that the eye may also count, and is received by faith. So then, um, God's word in this respect is milk that we feed on. All right, any other thoughts? It seems I recall there's a couple of verses elsewhere in the Bible that talks about uh, the men of God eating scrolls, eating the word of God, and it's bitter. I mean, is that, how are we to interpret that in the context of this? Uh, that, that's actually a physical eating of the scroll, was it? Or? Well, at least in a, in, a, in a visionary experience it was. Oh, okay, visionary. Okay. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Ezekiel and Revelation as the two examples that. that pop into my mind. And if I'm not mistaken, both, both of those take place in the context of a visionary experience. Okay. So it's not as if they, uh, I mean, otherwise you'd look at them and think they're suddenly losing their minds if they've got paper hanging out of their teeth or papyrus or whatever the scrolls were made of. Uh, but there's a sense in which, so that, that is actually a, a great image and symbol of uh, the prophet or by extension in the New Testament, the preacher, the, that which you eat, that which goes into you is that which is supposed to come out of you, right? So it goes into your mouth and comes out of your mouth. Now, in the, in the, uh, the royal priesthood, 
of which we are a part, and sort of the general prophetic office of all Christians everywhere proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That event takes place where the word is consumed and then the word is spoken. That event takes place for us weekly in the Lord's Supper. It's one of the reasons why we receive Jesus into our mouths so then we, as we go out into our vocations, as we go out into the Monday through Saturday of life, guess what's there? Or at least what's supposed to be there? Jesus. So we have him placed on our tongues so that when we open our mouths and our tongues speak, it's Jesus. It's the very thing we received. That's the idea there. So thanks for bringing that up, Barry. Yes, we have to get you microphoned here. I'm very hard of hearing. No, I'm just joking. It's actually for the internet. Yeah. Is there, how does that sound? Great. Clear? Okay. So um, my family, we're, we're here. I'm Ruth's daughter. and this is So we have two generations, and it's pretty cool. So we have dad, mom, and then three, <clears throat> and Jasmine. So that's the third. So, yeah, one, two, three. I'm, I, I'm still getting my coffee, so mm-hmm. I'm still waking up. <clears throat> I wonder who I take a, after dad, right? <laughs> Mom, she's like up in the morning. But we, there was a saying that, you know, because we're really into sports. My brother was a football t- player, and they would say, garbage in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. And that's the same for what we put in our food, in our mouth, physically, spiritually, and uh, whatever. I'm, I'm still going to wake up. Yeah, so, yeah, I know. Yeah, so, um, and you are what you eat. Mm-hmm. So when we are eating really healthy food, then we're going to feel it even in every cell cell of our body Mm -hmm. and our mind and our spirit. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's how I would interpret it because we're really into health. Uh And if you haven't tasted mom's green drinks, Uh I would recommend one. Yeah. Free vitamins. Yeah, there, there, is a, there is, to be sure, an analogy there and a, an overlap there in terms of idea. The fascinating thing, of course, about the scriptures and, it, and maybe a key distinction, so that which we take into our bodies and eat, we transform into our bodies. And when it comes to spiritual things, whether it be the Lord's Supper, whether it be the Word of God, we find ourselves consuming it and not transforming it into us, but being transformed by it into it. Right? So that to use Paul's argument in, um, I think it's right from 1 Corinthians 11 into 1 Corinthians 12, we become the body of Christ by partaking of the body of Christ. That is, the sacramental eating of Christ transforms us into the body of Christ. And then by extension, the word works the same way, doesn't it? Because it's a creative, powerful word. It's the, same, it's the same power and the same creativity that was in the beginning. Let there be light, and there's light out of the darkness. And so that word works in us powerfully in such a way that where our hearts are by nature only dark and sinful and dead and trespasses, God makes them alive and renews us, enlightens us by the Holy Spirit and does that continually, continually. Okay, good thoughts. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next, just the top line of that last paragraph on 105. The key to understanding Christ's response to the woman is his reference to keeping 
God's word. If you drop down to the footnote, we read, this term is used in Proverbs to mean meditation on wisdom by the keeping of its teaching. There are a slew of references in Proverbs. The most precise description of this process is given in Proverbs 4, 20-23. The words of wisdom need to be kept within the student's heart as the source of life from God. Like a fountain, they bring life to the heart from where it flows out and gives life to the whole of the body. The student must therefore guard and keep these words as if they were lifelines. So then we add this aspect or dynamic, that it is not merely receiving God's word, but also keeping God's word, namely within one's heart. Why does one have to keep it there? Because there are all sorts of other things from inside and from outside of us that want to supplant it so that our meditation is on something else or something contrary. All right, let's jump over to 106, where we continue this theme of spiritual feeding and its implications. Just looking at the first full paragraph on 106, Kleinig writes, we need to keep the word of God in our hearts so that it can continue feeding us. That is what meditation is all about. This really is the power of taking the time to memorize God's word. Even if it's uh, one small line that we memorize word for word, or an event or story or parable that we go over and over enough times that even if we might not have it precisely word for word, we understand the dynamics of it. Uh, we understand the events of it and could say it in our own words. Both of those are very helpful in terms of then having the word of God in our hearts so that it can continue to feed us. And as Kleinig will say, so then that the Holy Spirit may use that in order to instruct us as uh, to our, our particular circumstances in life. Let's drop down to the next paragraph where we get a fuller explanation of keeping God's word. So we're looking at the second full paragraph on page 106. Jesus explains the meaning of keeping God's word in John's gospel. In John 8, 31 through 32, Christ has this to say to those who wish to become his disciples, his students. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Those who continued in his word, more literally, those who abided in it, remained in it, resided in it, would be his disciples. Skipping to the next paragraph over on the top of 107, this notion of abiding or residing in Christ's word is, to be sure, a rather unusual expression. Yet in its oddity, it tells us much about the dynamic of meditation. The basic picture here is Christ's word as our home, the place where we reside with him, our fixed location in a changing world. That's really rather profound and worth considering that Christ's word is our fixed location in a changing world. 
Everything else in this world is temporary. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah, so where everything else is changing, what is the one thing that does not change? And that's, you could say, well, that's God or that's Christ. True enough, how do you access God? How do you access Christ? And that would be in his word. So residing with him, abiding with him, is to reside and abide in and with his word. Okay, so that gives us a home, so to speak. Kleine continues. Here we're looking at the sixth line down on that top paragraph, page 107. If we abide in his word, it does not just go in one ear and out the other. We memorize, retain, and keep paying attention to it. By abiding in Christ's word, we abide in him staying in touch with him, attached to him, and receiving life from him. He, in turn, abides in us, staying with us, and making himself at home with us. There's that imagery also in John's Gospel and in John's Epistle. By abiding in him, his life-giving words abide in us, making us spiritually fruitful, like healthy branches on a good vine stalk. Uh, John 15. We then abide in Christ's word by meditating on it in such a way that it keeps on speaking to us and doing its work in us. All right. Pastor Rody. Yes. Those of us who, we women that were at the ladies' retreat over <laughs> in um, Air's Hotel this weekend had Cindy Steinbeck, uh, who is an owner of that vineyard, her vines that she had there and the demonstrations of, the, of uh, our being uh, re responsive to Christ when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The image that stands out for me is the waiting of of the Word of God, or the, the the growing of the Word of God in us, like we we are grafted into that, the main vine as a branch, mm -hmm. but what st stays with me still is the sap that oozed out after a while, which to me depicts our being our being rich in in understanding mm -hmm. and and. Uh, a, a healthy, it depicts a healthiness that, didn't you ladies get that? That when that sap came through, I mean, this is just <laughs> picturesque for me, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And I know the guys weren't there, but it was, may I just take the time to mention that? I really appreciated her presentation. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. And here in this context, uh, we might be encouraged to see that that sap, so to speak, that goes from the vine to the branches as being uh, the word, right? As being that word of Christ that goes from the vine to the branches, giving us life, and not only life, but then ultimately producing in us fruitfulness, right? Oh, can I make a comment? Sure. Um, well, when I, I have a personal connection to... Um, I. I was I was hit pretty hard at the seminar about the sap 
because to me it reminded me of like a blood transfusion. Mm -hmm. And so our blood is joined with his blood. And it could be literally. Because when I was born, I had how many blood transfusions? Five. I had five. So they didn't know if I was going to live. But with everyone's blood, you know, going from... What are you, positive? I'm, I'm, okay, you're negative, and I was positive. So they had to transfuse all my blood. So that really hit me hard at the seminar. Yeah. Because Christ's blood... Right. It's transfusing us. Yes, right. Literally. <laughs> right. Very well said. Okay, so moving on to a different concept or a different motif, Kleinig introduces this, our spiritual director. He begins with the analogy of different electrical appliances, each operating by the power of an electric current. They don't produce or possess electricity. They simply receive it and are empowered by it. So let's look at the very last two lines on the bottom of 107. As Christians, we live and work by the power of God's Holy Spirit, a power that we never possess, but always receive. We can achieve nothing spiritually by ourselves. Only as long as we are attached to Christ and receive the Spirit from Him can we live the life of Christ and do the work of God the Father. Our spiritual life depends entirely on our ongoing reception of the Holy Spirit. And that's a key uh, line, simply the recognition that when we as Christians talk about a spiritual life, we're not talking about something within man per se. A spiritual life can only come from the one who is the Holy Spirit. So our spiritual life, there is spiritual life in us only because the Holy Spirit is in us. That's the point, right? Without the Holy Spirit, there really is no spiritual life. There is only spiritual death. That would be the other way to say it. So our spiritual life depends entirely on our ongoing reception of the Holy Spirit. This, by the way, is why our Book of Concord refers to the Word and sacraments as the means of the Spirit. So we often today talk about them as the means of grace, and that has its advantages, but the means of the Spirit as a term really shines through here, doesn't it? Because it is the way in which the Holy Spirit enters us and works through us. The means of the Spirit, uh, Word and Sacrament. Connie continues, the practice of meditation is included in this. Meditation depends on our ongoing reception of the Holy Spirit and the continual operation of the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus teaches us about the role of the Holy Spirit in meditation in John 16, 12 through 15. This is the last part of his teaching about the Spirit in his farewell speech to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And here it is. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now there's a footnote there, and it's worth dropping down to the bottom of the page, footnote 15. The verb that Jesus uses here, for guide, right? The verb that Jesus uses here is used with its noun for the guide of a blind person on a road. It is also used literally 
for the role of Judas in leading the party of soldiers at night to arrest Jesus. Metaphorically, it is used for the role of Philip in teaching the Ethiopian eunuch about Jesus, as well as the role of Jesus in bringing the saints into his father's presence. Okay? So, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That is, as one who guides the blind into the truth. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. There at the word declare is another footnote. Here Kleinig says, Note how the verb declare occurs three times in these verses. It also means to report, announce, or proclaim, and the only other place it is used in uh, John's Gospels 4.25. So, um, this is the second main aspect in this text. In the first main aspect, the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. In the second place, he will declare to you, plural, the things that are to come. So he will guide and he will declare. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Declaring what is Christ, what, what belongs to Christ and what is Christ, declaring that to us. So, let's put that very concretely. How can you tell where the Holy Spirit is at work? In Jesus' way of teaching it here, where Christ is being proclaimed, there the Holy Spirit is at work. And where Christ isn't being proclaimed, there the Holy Spirit isn't at work, no matter what the other claims might be. So the Holy Spirit takes the things that are mine, Jesus says, and declares it to you. Continuing with the text, all that the Father has is mine, Jesus says. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now there's a great train and pathway, isn't there? From the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Spirit, from the Spirit to us. Kleinig comments, here Jesus is not just speaking to his apostles, but to all his disciples, including us, about the role of the Holy Spirit in the church. The risen Lord Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit as our spiritual director and guide in our journey with him. Let's continue this idea over on page 109 at the second full paragraph. The Holy Spirit plays an important role in our meditation on God's Word. We meditate on God's Word in order to receive the Holy Spirit and all the gifts that the Spirit brings to us as a foretaste and pledge of our heavenly inheritance. As we meditate on God's Word and put our trust in it, the Holy Spirit takes over from us in our thinking and preaches it to us. The Holy Spirit turns what we do into something that is done to us, something that happens to us. The Spirit turns our meditation into an exercise of reception. Okay. We have more to come on the idea of uh, the Holy Spirit's involvement in meditation. We'll look at a Luther quote next. Before we do, anything stand out to you?
Any questions? All right. Let's move over to page 110 then. We'll just continue this same theme with Luther. The first full paragraph on 110. Luther, in his teaching on meditation, highlights this role of the Holy Spirit as our teacher and guide. His basic assumption is that the same Spirit who inspired the Scriptures still animates them and us through them. Thus he says, you should meditate not only in your heart, but also externally by actually repeating and comparing oral speech and literal words of the book, reading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection so that you may see what the Holy Spirit means by them. So you probably do this already when you're reading a scripture or in a Bible study and you're going over the scriptures and and it just doesn't make sense to you. Or maybe part of it does and the other part doesn't. You read it and reread it. You play with different ideas. You play with different themes. You reach out to the broader context. You think back to times where similar things have been said in the book or where similar uh, words have been used in the book and you come to a closer or more full understanding of, of what that otherwise mysterious passage is. So that's what Luther's talking about here. Um, and for him, not so much that it just be a silent mental exercise, though I, he certainly doesn't preclude that, but that we actually repeat and compare um, in oral speech the literal words of the book, reading and rereading them. This, by the way, too, is where I, w- I should say it this way: If you don't, if you don't know um, Hebrew or Greek, for example, even, even if you do, or you don't have access to the tools in order to use it, which there's a number of tools today. There's a Strong's Concordance, which can be very helpful for people who don't know the languages. There's also a Logos Bible software that can be very helpful. So those tools can can be helpful. But even, even maybe one step removed from those, but still very helpful, is um, comparing multiple English translations altogether. That can be a very helpful thing. And there's a free, uh, it's called Bible Hub or something. Half the time when you just type in a verse into Google, it'll come up with Bible Gateway, which gives you a little more full context. Another one of the common ones is Bible Hub. And Bible Hub tends to go more verse by verse. But immediately what you see is, I don't know what it is, five or seven or ten or something different English translations. Now, what's helpful there is you can, you know, if you read through it once, you can already eliminate sort of the fringe ones, right? Okay, these are the fringe ones. The others are saying something very similar. These are the fringe ones. We'll take that into account. Maybe it flavors it, but the meaning is probably somewhere more in the middle. Then by comparing just the different English translations, what, what you're doing we learn all this seminary. You're just establishing what we would call like a semantic field or a semantic domain. But even before I can say it's precisely this, I want a range in my head of what it might be, right? Now I want to reread it in context and try to nail down what the author, given the rest of the context of his epistle or his preaching or whatever it is, is. Uh, what is he trying to get across? Now that's going to help me really nail down the sentiment of of that verse, so pick, to choose actual words from within that semantic domain or field. At any rate, um, 
that's, that's what Luther is getting at. He's putting it, of course, in a very simple way for us, but actually repeating, comparing oral, oral speech, comparing literal words. For us, that would include comparing translations, reading it, rereading it, thinking about it wrongly, thinking about it rightly, finding the boundaries, finding the middle. This is all meditation. And this is how we meditate. Sometimes without even realizing we're doing it, like I mentioned in a study. Other times intentionally. And it's a good and great practice. Okay, and then Luther adds to this that reading and rereading them with diligent attention and reflection so that you may see what the Holy Spirit means by them. For God will not give you his spirit without the external word, so take your cue from that, that is from the external word. His command to write, preach, read, hear, sing, speak, etc. outwardly was not given in vain. That's true, it's great. That's, that's where the liturgy really helps and the various liturgical forms, because those tunes get the Word of God caught in your, in your mind. Some of them are really addictive. They're earworm kind of tunes, and they get stuck there, and then you, you sing it over and over, you hum it over and over. Sometimes you don't even know exactly what it means, and you only find after humming it or singing it for years that you suddenly come to a deeper understanding of, oh, that's what that means. Ah, <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Uh, it happens to us all, all the time. So, uh, anyway, that's part and parcel of it, to sing it. So there's Luther reflecting on the theme. Now, we can close out this section by dropping down to the bottom of 110, looking at the last paragraph there, which goes up to the top of 111. This gift of the Holy Spirit is most evident in what Luther calls the preaching of the Spirit. So a slightly modified concept here, but overlapping with what preceded By this, he, Luther, refers to the occasional flood of inspiration and enlightenment, jubilation and empowerment that breaks in on us as we meditate on God's word. Now, your mileage may vary here. You you may find this rare and fleeting, uh, or you may find it not so rare. But for Luther, as one who certainly studied God's word as his vocation, you know, there are aspects of, let me put it this way maybe, when God curses the world after the sin that you shall eat by the sweat of your brow, theologians aren't left out of that. <laughs> They're left inside of that curse. Not tilling an earthly field, but tilling the word of God, so to speak, and finding their difficulty, ineptitude, frustration, sudden storms that come and wipe away the crop <laughs> that you've been working so hard on, etc., um, etc. Et the point being that um, even a theologian of Luther's magnitude, it's not just all ah, sublime aha moments and eureka moments, but there are many long months and years uh, tilling and working and laboring without those sudden moments of enlightenment and jubilation. But at any rate, they do occur. So as Kleinig points out, by this Luther refers to the occasional flood of inspiration and enlightenment, jubilation and empowerment that breaks in on us as we meditate on God's word. We can't force inspiration, but can only receive it when it happens. Enlightenment is given as we attend to the scriptures and become engrossed in them as they speak personally to us. Luther gives this advice about the enlightenment that comes in meditation. If such an abundance of good thoughts comes to us, 
we ought to make room for such thoughts. Listen in silence and under no circumstances obstruct them. The Holy Spirit himself preaches here. And one word of his sermon is far better than a thousand of our prayers. So I think practically for each of you as students of God's word, this, this would be my one humble addition, precisely where you have something that you don't understand or that you can't really reconcile or you have this unsettled feeling about it. That's precisely what to cling to and ponder it in your heart and listen. Just keep it in the back of your mind and listen. It may be months later, it may be years later, it may even be decades later, but that answer comes eventually, eventually. So, so that what we want is all of God's word to be instantly clear and instantly enlightening. But the fact of the matter is there isn't. For all of us at different stages in our lives, there are things we wrestle with, whether it's in the word itself or whether it's in the application of the word, whether it's in some theological mystery as such or a theological mystery that has woven itself deeply into the reality of our lives. These things can be small, they can be great, they can be emotional, they can be academic, um, but cling to those things, meditate on those things, hold on to them, because that's, those are precisely where the enlightenment or the experience of jubilation is ultimately to come, if that makes sense. So, where there's the cross, there's the resurrection. Maybe that's a way to put it. All right, well, that's the idea of uh, the Holy Spirit as our spiritual director. Any thoughts on that before we go on to the fruit of meditation? Physical exercise is good, but spiritual exercise is better. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. That's what you do when you Yes, meditation, prayer, all of that, right. It is a kind of spiritual exercise. That, and Kleinig drew that analogy for us in an earlier chapter. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, let me ask this, or see if I understand this right. Uh, the external uh, focus is reading God's word out loud. Yes, Luther's highlighting that oh, point, and thus Kleinig's highlighting that point. I personally, uh, when I read out loud, I, I don't absorb anything. I mean, uh -huh. It's like a, on a thermometer. I, I guess I must be focused on the delivery of it. Or, uh -huh. uh, so... Uh, so I pick up on memorizing and uh, stopping and, and a part of the verse that I don't understand, stay with it, uh, hang with it, and eventually you're saying the Holy Spirit will interpret that. Right? Yeah, I'm saying if there's any, any cue whatsoever, and often enough there's not, um, as to where enlightenment or jubilation is going to come, it's usually precisely where you're hung up on something, mm -hmm. Right. And so I would, I would simply advise to uh, do what Mary did um, when she was hung up on something, namely the, pro the prophecy that a sword would pierce her heart through on account of the child that was, she was given. She pondered these things in her heart, right? So you, it is precisely in the, in the word that you don't understand and the word that brings pain that you ponder it in, in your heart, right? 
It's a, it's a mystery. And if there's any indication of where enlightenment or jubilation is to come, it's by holding that mystery. I just say that from my own personal experience, Barry, as thinking back to the things that used to, used to especially trouble me about God's word, um, I now see those as, as you know, great breakthroughs and great moments where the Holy Spirit gave me greater understanding or unveiled something to me that I didn't previously see. And so now, I, now as I, it's, it's not that I've by any means matured past the point of those uh, sorts of difficulties that you experience. They're there and they're probably even more intractable than before, but now I know enough to wait patiently that in all good time, even if that means at the end of time, the Holy Spirit will unveil and enlighten in that respect. So I take those things and ponder them in my heart, as, and I, I think we all do. Let me take this a little further. Uh, a sermon. Uh, we, it, it's like a river of truth passing by. And uh, I don't know whether it's my age, but sometimes two, three days later, Jan and I will be talking and we'll, what was the sermon about? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and we, we, I mean, it takes a minute. Sometimes it doesn't come, you know. So can we be confident that that's going into our heart? And uh, if we don't, I mean, I, I take notes as a, as a mechanism to help me grasp, pull truth, uh, you know, morsels of it out and write it down. Uh, and uh, so I'm just, uh, I guess, meditating. The sermon is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about reading God's Word. I well, the sermon would be part of it, okay, sure. Yeah, as long, we're, assume, we're making a bunch of assumptions here. <coughs> Namely, that the sermon is good. And by good, I mean faithful. I don't mean entertaining, it's right? It's based on God's Word. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a faithful sermon. Not necessarily an entertaining sermon, but it's faithful. And then, and then that fits as a subcategory of this thinking and meditation. Now, I would, I would say if it's any, I don't know that it's consolation, least misery loves company. Sometimes I forget what the sermon was about, and I'm the one that preached it. I don't, I don't think that that's a necessarily a deficiency in me, um, and although maybe it is. Uh, the, the point being, it's, it's like you know, the analogy of spiritual eating is apropos, because some meals you savor, some meals are functional. Some meals you remember, some meals you don't. But at the end of it, it was all food. It was all sustenance. It was all nourishment, um, and I and I think that that's I think that that's true even on um, you know the twenty seventh Sunday of Pentecost where you've been in the sea of green pyramids for years and in the teaching of Jesus forever. Um, it, there's there's something there's something analogous in this. Uh, you can you can have any kind of meal, the most humble meal, and if you focus on what it is and you focus on the, the goodness and the gift that it is, you can really enjoy that very humble and otherwise forgettable meal. There are parts of God's word that are the, very much the same way, where if you're paying attention to it, you're going to find that it's much more enjoyable, right? Um, what typically happens to us, though, in terms of our spiritual eating is the same thing that happens to us in terms of our regular eating. Meals are just meals until you have the one or two special ones a year that you really look forward to and you really remember. You know, like Thanksgiving, for example. And um, spiritual eating can be like that too, where there's really just one or two things that stand out to you and that's it. That's probably how it is for most of us most of the time. Yes? 
Uh huh. Oh yes. Right, like fried chicken and mashed potatoes and all of that, isn't that? Yeah, right. And then there's chicken soup for the soul, which is the book. Yeah, right. I've met the author. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's all sorts of analogies to be drawn here. And Trader Joe's has a wonderful fig cheese lobna that makes it a pleasure to uh, eat. A fig cheese log that's a pleasure to eat. That sounds to me like the book of James. <laughs> Yes, God, please. Uh, Pastor, I was just going to on a few occasions, I've noticed that preaching and Bible study between divine service, you know, that will find its way into comments in this class and then, you know, into the sermon. And what I remember from my freshman psychology class is that you have to repeat something six times yeah. to get it from short-term memory to long-term memory. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to... This class, you're going to the Bible class. You follow your suggestion last week to try to do the reading before the sermon. And then you get in the sermon and you listen to the podcast later. You got five of the six, and you might remember it because we all have the same, you know, I'll ask, mm-hmm. you know, my children or something about a sermon. And it's sometimes you just kind of get that blank look like uh-huh. when your dog is begging for a treat. <laughs> but uh, if, you're, if you're hitting all those places, then you got a chance, you know, plus Barry writing it down. So. Right. Right, and the and the absorption is slow often and almost unconscious often because it's just over and over and over and then it's there. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. I was just going to make the comparison between eating and reading the scripture. Many people, they sit down and they just race through their food and they're just uh-huh. talking and don't even realize what they've been eating. Yes. I tend to eat more slowly. Yes. Every once in a while I'll say, let's not talk for a minute. Let's just focus on what we're eating because it tastes so good. Uh-huh. So I think that's a really good analogy. Yeah. Well, that's why I've spent five weeks on original sin in the adult class. <laughs> let's eat slowly. Well, there, there's really something to be said for that, especially in Bible study, because our, in our day and age it's very much, well, let's get through this. Well, why? Because then I accomplished it. Check the box, study that book, finish that book, right? But is that really the point, right? So you have to ask yourself, what is the point? If the point is really to soak yourself into God's word and have God's word soak itself into you, then the point might be to be more slow and more meticulous, which, of course, you know me. You've sat in my class. That's the way it often is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Talking about the mother of Jesus, so from the moment that she uh, spoke to uh, the angel, from that moment that she conceived, uh, you know, in her womb, from the Holy Spirit, until the crucifixion of Jesus, her journey is, is she, she, I mean, she might wonder what's going on and what is Jesus doing and why he has to go through all that it, up to the point that he rather die? And I'm asking, you know, where is her faith coming from? Because it's very hard to bear. She had to escape because she was pregnant and she, has to, she had to go everywhere hiding. And still after Jesus born, you know, 
all these things that Jesus had done and end up at the cross. Can you explain how Mary get her faith from him? I know that she might learn a lot from Jesus. Right. But still, she's human. Yes. Can you explain Well, you certainly, you, you certainly see her humanness by way of preface in a number of texts. The concern she has when Jesus is lost at the temple when he's 12, if not unbelief, at least uncertainty when she arrives with Jesus' siblings, in quote, in quotes, at the door, trying to take him away, saying that he's mad, that he's lost his mind. Um, now, there, so there are very human moments when we look at Mary in that respect. Uh, but also then, we see, we see two things. She has a present tense word of God when the angel comes to her, etc., that no doubt she clings hold of and grasps hold of. She has other present tense um, words of God that come through, uh, who is it, Anna the prophetess, there with um, Simeon. Yeah, so she has other present tense people confirming what the angel has said, so other present tense word of God that, she's able, that her faith clings on to, no doubt. No doubt Jesus' own word and teaching in his ministry, present tense guides her along the way. I keep using present tense because, as is evident from Mary's Magnificat, she also, somewhere along the line, learned the Old Testament scriptures very well. So she has that as well. Because the Magnificat demonstrates a masterful understanding of the major themes of the Old Testament and uses much of the same textual illusion that the Old Testament itself does. All indicating that Mary was what we would call very well catechized. And so she has all of that that is sustaining her too as she goes. So it's God's word that sustains Mary all the way through. And in this respect... Um, Mary is an icon of the church, as Revelation shows. She's also the iconic disciple. Luther talks this way, that if you look at any of the, any of the disciples, because she embodies discipleship, she all, she, in a sense, she's the first disciple, as soon as the angel speaks to her, that this child will be the Christ. In that sense, she is temporarily the first disciple of Jesus, who is the Christ, because she knows that her son is to be the Savior. Um, at any rate, she is the icon of discipleship and the icon of Christ. Uh, she, you know, no one loves you more than your own mother, ever. It's kind of a sad fact <laughs> when you get to be an adult. Uh, but then, um, in that respect, too, you can see humanly she loves, she loves Jesus. Probably more than any other earthly person loved Jesus. And so she becomes an icon in that, following him to the cross, there at the cross, uh, being blessed by him after the, after the resurrection, being faithful, um, living with John as he instruct, as Jesus instructed from the cross, and then John being the one who writes Revelation and sees the church embodied in her visage, in her image, uh, in Revelation 12. So, at any rate, maybe that's all you want to know about Mary for now. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a few minutes left here. Let's go on to the fruit of meditation. We can do this pretty rapidly, I think. So what Kleinig wants to do, as best I can tell in this section, 
is talk to us about what meditation is commonly understood to be and how that differs from Christian meditation. So, in the first uh, major paragraph there on 111, he says meditation is supposed to increase a sense of euphoria and well-being. Contrary to that, uh, Christian meditation may, Kleinig writes, at times even feel badly. We may even feel badly about ourselves because he, that is Christ, the Word, exposes our guilt and failure as we ponder his Word. So contrary to this idea that um, meditation is chiefly for euphoria, Christian meditation isn't that at all. In fact, it may lead to the opposite of euphoria. But that is also good. Okay, the second paragraph at the very bottom of 111, people meditate in order to solve their personal problems. Over on 112 at the top, Kleinig warns, rightfully so, that meditation on God's word may in fact unsettle us and create new problems. But nonetheless, that's good. In fact, it has a way of showing us what our real problems are as opposed to the problems we thought were our problems but really are rather superficial. Okay, third, which is the first full paragraph on 112, some people also use meditation as a therapeutic exercise or a healing exercise. Kleinig goes on to say, Christians do not meditate in order to draw on their spiritual potential or heal themselves. Um, they do not believe that all spiritual powers are good. Some powers, in fact, are evil because they come from the evil spirit who can and does perform physical miracles. So through meditation, we may even discover how spiritually weak and spiritually powerless we are. So again, think about it this way. Most people would meditate in order to feel spiritual wellness or spiritual strength. Sometimes... Christian meditation results in the exact opposite. Okay, and then fourth, the last paragraph there on 112. Some methods of meditation are used more or less blatantly for pagan purposes, which is obviously going to be contrary to Christian meditation. Christian meditation does not culminate in self-illumination or the achievement of divine consciousness but in the dark night of the soul and the knowledge of Christ crucified. So, uh, in short, Christian meditation ultimately results in a meditation on uh, Good Friday and Easter, or law and gospel, right? Um, so, not just um, climbing this ladder to illumination or achievement, um, but being in the midst of law and gospel. Well, I see that we're, um, gosh, we got, do we have three minutes? Do we have, I don't know what we have. Are the clocks? Two minutes. Two minutes? Yeah. Let's stop there for today. So that's what Christian meditation is not. And now then we're going to look at Christian meditation, what it is, but what it is specifically in light of the parable of the sower. And let's get into that next week. So that means picking up at, Page 113. Not next week. Oh, yes, thank you. Not next week. Thank you, thank you. doesn't matter how many times I write it down. I still forget. Thank you. Next week, we're obviously off since it will be uh, Thanksgiving. Um, that means in two weeks. Page 113 through page 123.
The Lord be with you.